Good evening. Good evening online. If Storm Kira has locked your door and kept you in, I'm grateful to you for taking the time to be with us. And if you have brought your windbreaker and your spotlight and your spade in case you get stuck in 20 feet of snow that will fall between now and the end of our service, thank you uh, for being here this evening too. My name is Malcolm Duncan and I have the privilege of leading the church here at Dundonald. Matthew Syed was a, or is a, world table tennis champion. He wrote a book called Bounce, about the power of small things done repeatedly. He's from Reading, not where you would expect a world table tennis champion to come from, perhaps. What's interesting is, in his street where he lived, um, not only did he become a world table tennis champion, but his brother became a world table tennis champion. And two doors up from where they lived, two young girls became world table tennis champions. And round the corner was the world table tennis under 16 championship uh, winner. They all went to the same school. And they all shared one common teacher who taught them to believe that their small practices, week after week, month after month, year after year, could help them to become the best version of themselves. None of them were particularly gifted in table tennis. What they did was they enjoyed it, they were relatively good at it, and they just kept turning up. He estimates that around 10,000 hours of practice is what was put in and required of somebody to move from a level of competency to a level of excellence. And he goes as far as to say this, hard work and perseverance, turning up and just keep practicing is what will make the difference. I'm not sure that 10,000 hours of practice for me with a ping pong ball and a bat <laughs> at this stage in my life would make me a world table tennis champion. Nevertheless, the point is interesting, don't you think? That small things done repeatedly, a little tiny thing, a small sense of ability, a small sense of enjoyment, whatever it might be, done repeatedly could make a huge difference in the world. The sociologist Margaret Mead said, never, ever, ever forget that small things can make a huge difference. Anybody who doesn't believe that has never been in bed with a mosquito. Malcolm Gladwin, 20 years ago, wrote a book called The Tipping Point. And in it, he argues that a whole culture can be changed by just 2% of that culture having a dream or a passion or a vision about something. He tells the story of the American uh, War, Civil War, the American War of Independence, and how Paul Robespierre um, uh, was, uh, was given some sense of um, compulsion as he rode on his horse from Boston across America, letting people know what was going to be happening. He points to the 1970s, and the fact that in the early 1970s, a little-known brand called Hush Puppies was on, the bra was on the brink of extinction until a couple of very well-known people started to wear them and started to talk about them in the days before Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and any other social media platform that you can imagine. A couple of people started to wear them. Those couple of people got noticed by somebody else. Somebody else got noticed by somebody else. And within a few years, Hush Puppies had gone from a brand that was on the verge of extinction to a brand that was flourishing all around the world. The same happened for um, the, uh, the British fabric manufacturer Burberry not so long ago. 
couple of people um, began to wear it and everything had changed. Small things making a huge difference. And tonight I want to talk to you a little bit about not social theory, not politics, not marketing, not selling, although it's interesting and I really do enjoy it, but I think you'd rather be bored very quickly. But I want to talk to you about the idea that God might use small things. That God might take the insignificant aspects of Malcolm Duncan or you and use them for his glory. That the thing that you regard as useless, God might regard as priceless. And that you might have counted yourself out of the purposes and plans of God because you made mistakes, because you got things wrong, because you're not tall enough or clever enough or um, connected enough. Or you might walk into a room and put yourself at number 99 if there are 100 people there of significance, but that has nothing to do with what God might see in you. That God can take our insignificance, our things, our lives, and use them for his glory. And that in this room there could be people whose decisions could shape the change of shape, change the shape of Northern Irish culture. There's nothing smaller than an X on a piece of paper. But there are a lot of people waking up in the Republic of Ireland today and tomorrow who realize they're in a new political landscape. Back in the last couple of myriad elections that we've had in the United Kingdom, small X's put on boxes have made a huge difference for the direction of this country. Our sense of identity, our sense of purpose, our sense of significance, our sense of where we belong and where we are going. Small, insignificant moments that are drawn together. I wonder, could you think back in your own life and think about moments that were apparently insignificant for you, but became hugely significant to you as you look back on them? I remember one in particular. I was playing the clarinet in church, enjoying doing a little bit of riffing in between the verses and the bridge. You didn't have as many bridges and songs when I was playing the clarinet regularly in church. We maybe had one. Now we have about six bridges, four choruses, five intercoruses, and six different versions of verses and songs. I love it. I was standing by my little chair on the left-hand side. There were two doors. I'm playing the clarinet quite joyfully, enjoying myself and enjoying worshipping God. And I tilted my head to the left. And this vision of beauty walked into the room, wearing a pair of navy collots <laughs> and a blazer that was like a um, tweedy thing, a big pair of square glasses and a, a dusky pink hat. And I thought, God. <laughs> it was a rather insignificant moment. But actually, it was probably after my conversion, the most significant moment of my life. Because it was the day that, obviously, I saw my wife-to-be for the first time. Small, insignificant moments to the day we decided that we were going to go and study. And uproot our family from where we were living in Scotland at the time. And we made choices that um, were difficult to make. We had less than £25. We borrowed um, for with student loans, had to sell our bed. 
so that we could go to Bible college. Ended up sitting with almost nothing. One of the best decisions we ever made. Getting a job whilst at Bible college because we couldn't make ends meet. My wife was working as a midwife and I was doing anything I could to help support. And I got a job in um, Safeway, it was called at the time, <laughs> behind the deli counter. I did that in the evenings and cleaned toilets in the mornings. And you know what? I'm proud of both. And there was this blessed woman. You talk about small and significant moments. Every Friday night at 8 o'clock she'd come in and say, can I have half a pound, when you were allowed to use that language, half a pound of cheddar cheese, freshly cut. And I would have a nervous assault every time I saw her approach the counter. Because if I give her seven pounds and three quarters of an ounce, she would say, no, I asked for eight. I got eight, half a pound. Uh, seven ounces, seven and three quarter ounces. She'd say, you're a quarter of an ounce out, cut another bit. If I was a quarter of an ounce over, she'd make me cut another bit. And every Friday, when I got up in the morning, I would begin to have a panic about the fact that this woman would come in to ask for this cheese. And that I was going to have to get it right. And I got it wrong more often than I got it right. Twenty years, every time she came, I'd say, good evening. That's not how I felt. Twenty years later, I got an email from her, or a Facebook message, actually, saying, you used to serve me cheese. And Safeway, and immediately I thought, I know who you are. She said, every week I would do it on purpose to wind you up. And you smiled at me every week, and you'd say, God bless to me every time I left. I've since become a Christian because you served me half a pound of cheese every week. You want me to say, praise the Lord, it was worth it? That's not how I felt. Our lives are littered with small decisions, small opportunities, small moments. But if we think about them, if we allow ourselves to be present in them, God could take and use. The Bible is littered with stories of small things and how they make a difference. I'd like to read one to you from the Gospel of Matthew. But before I do that, Davy, I just want to say to you, <laughs> your announcements were wonderful. But nobody's going to bring nappies for five and six-year-olds. <laughs> I was listening. Small things can make a huge difference. If when your baby is born, you bring nappies for five-year-olds and six-year-olds home, you will be significantly in big issues, my brother. Just letting you know. And all those that have survived parenthood said, Amen. See, see, Matthew chapter 14. <laughs> Verses 13 to 21. Now when Jesus heard this, the this that he is referring to here is the death of his cousin The brutal murder of an innocent man. <coughs> now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. 
Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. The feeding of the 5,000 as the miracle is described is one of only a few incidents in the ministry and life of Jesus that's recorded in all four Gospels. In the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke and the Gospel of John. It's recorded here in Matthew chapter 14 verses 13 to 21. In Mark chapter 6 verses 31 to 44. In Luke chapter 9 verses 12 to 17. And in John chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. Alongside it, there is another miracle recorded in the Gospels of Jesus feeding around 4,000 people. That's recorded in Matthew chapter uh, 15, verses 32 to 39. And Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 9. In each of the miracles, God takes a little, Jesus takes a little, and when he touches it and it is given to him, he feeds thousands with it. There are differences in the miracle accounts of the feeding of the 5,000 that are worth noting, although they're not that important for what I want to say to you tonight. It's all about understanding that each gospel writer brings their own perspective, which in itself is an important theological principle. They each have something to say about where they place a story. So for Matthew, Jesus feeding the 5,000 and the story that falls just after the death of Jesus' cousin John the Baptist is an important placing. Here Jesus is trying to get away for a rest, but his ministry never ceases. He's always aware. He's always present. He always sees other people first. In Mark, we read that he tells, Jesus tells the disciples to have those that are hungry sit down in groups of 50s and 100s. In Luke's event, in Luke's account, it's only in 50s. In John's account, the feeding of the 5,000 placed at the beginning of the Gospel of John chapter 6 is immediately followed in verse 33, in fact from verse 22 on, with Jesus explaining that he is the bread of heaven. So for John, the feeding of the 5,000 is not about so much the miracle of um, the, the loaves and fishes. It's about the fact that Jesus is saying Moses was used by God to uh, um, call down manna from heaven. I am the bread of life for all who are hungry. The numbers become secondary. The point in John's gospel is that Jesus is the one that feeds our souls, that feeds us and sustains us and helps us no matter where we are and no matter what we are facing. The feeding of the 4,000 similarly has differences in the two accounts in Matthew and in Mark. Uh, one, for example, in Mark's account, tells us that there are two different types of baskets used. 
In the feeding of the 5,000, we're told that there were 12 baskets of fragments that were collected. In the feeding of the 4,000, there were seven. How could they be the same event? Well, that's even more clear when you read that the five, the set, the 12 baskets in the feeding of the 5,000 are a different word in Greek. They're hand baskets. They're smaller, much like the size of baskets that you would put logs in beside a fire. The baskets that are described as having seven of them in Mark's gospel are huge. And they, the word is used to describe the basket into which Paul was placed when he was escaping from Damascus in Acts chapter 9. A basket big enough for a person to get into. Not only that, but in Matthew chapter 16, verses 7 to 11, and in Mark chapter 8, verses 16 to 21, Jesus himself refers to both events in each passage. Using both events as an example to explain to those that are listening to him of his capacity to meet people and to provide for them and his power. So although it doesn't make that much difference for us tonight, I would suggest to you that these are two separate moments. They're two separate encounters. They're two separate examples of what God does through Jesus Christ when we bring him the little that we've got. And that little was, according to one of the gospel accounts, a lunch provided by a small boy. I'm sure the people that were present must have had some food somewhere. The odd equivalent of a first century bar of chocolate in their pocket. Or a bit of bread in a bag. Or a stale fish from the day before lying somewhere in their belongings. Some commentators suggest that what happens is when the crowd see this little boy coming with his innocence and with his naivety and with his simplicity of faith to say, I can help you, and gives his loaves and fish, the rest of the people that are present are shamed into action, realizing that they've all got something to share. That might be part of the story. I tend to just believe the text. That Jesus miraculously took this tiny offering and fed 5,000 men with it. Probably 10 or 15,000 people when you include everybody that was there. There's something powerful about that image, isn't it? Isn't there? You and I bringing that little that we've got, that small amount that we don't think is significant. Or maybe the little boy did think it was significant. I love um, spending time with young people. I don't know whether they love spending time with me. I love being with people whose innocence and naivety is such that they really believe that their small voice can make a huge difference. They haven't yet been tainted by the idea that they're too old or they're too weak or they're too uneducated or they're too far gone or whatever it might be. But they actually still believe that they could make a whole difference. Can you not remember as a child that sense of adventure that you have? There was a little uh, stream near where we lived when I was growing up in Rathcool called the Glen. It wouldn't have been any broader than the space between these sets of um, chairs. But when we went to play in it as children, building a dam in it, we thought that we were building something the equivalent of the Hoover Dam. We'd go up onto the Carmeny Hills and get a bit of cardboard and slide down the cardboard on the dry, dusty ground, imagining that we were going down the side of what must have been the equivalent of Tiger in our heads and in our imaginations, or under the O'Neill Road and play chicken with the cars that were going up and down between Glengormley and uh, Clockburn Corner, sliding down the side of the road in a bit of black, deep plastic, hoping that the plastic would get us along the downhill across the road and over to the other side before the car that was coming up hit us. 
I'm not recommending that. <laughs> but there was a naivety, there was an innocence, there was a, a capacity about us. Do you remember that? That sense of adventure, that your little life actually could make a huge difference. What if God never wanted us to, to lose that? It's time that has eroded our sense of possibility. When I was 10, I had nothing to lose. In your 30s and 40s, you feel like you've got everything to lose. Although I think as I enter my 50s, I feel as if I've got nothing to lose again, which is quite good. I feel as if I'm entering adolescence for the second time. Well, I hope I am. And what if God wants to say to you tonight, mother, father, aunt, uncle, businesswoman, businessman, grandfather, great-grandfather, new Christian, there's nothing to lose and everything to gain in bringing your life as it is now to God that he might do something with it. You see, the story of the miracle of feeding 5,000 people has Christ at its center and what he can do when we bring who we are and what we have and give it to him. But it's not the only story in the Bible that has such a powerful resonance around small things. Stop and think about it and you will remember stories like the story of the widow's oil in 2 Kings chapter 4 verses 1 to 7 where Elisha is encountered by a woman who has nothing but a, ha- a small bottle of oil. But that small bottle of oil given to God becomes something through which a village is rescued. Or Elijah, when he meets the widow of Zarephath, who's out making sticks in 1 Kings chapter 17, collecting sticks to make a fire so that she and her family can die. And yet God, in his grace and his mercy, meets with this woman, not in what she doesn't have, but in what she does have. In the book of Exodus, as Moses is called by God to lead the people out of Egypt and into the promised land, in Exodus chapter 4, Moses complains that he has nothing to give God, that he hasn't got any experience, that he's not eloquent enough, that he's not educated enough, that he's not theological enough. And God says to him, very simply, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 2, give me what is in your hand. And the only thing that Moses has in his hand is a stick. And that's not even his, it's his brother's. And that stick through the life of Moses becomes a symbol of God's power. It's that stick raised above the Red Sea that separates it. It's that stick that hits the rock. It's that stick that is lifted when God wants to say something to the people of God, to the Hebrews through Moses. The simple stick. It's that stick that's thrown down amongst the snakes when the Pharaoh's magicians turn their sticks into snakes. Just what he's got in his hand. I wonder sometimes, for those of us that are already followers of Jesus Christ, whether or not we are waiting for a perfect moment to bring our service to God. We're waiting for a second when everything fits, when it's all sorted out, when we've got everything together and we think, now we can serve him. Do you know what, sisters and brothers, if I can speak to Christians for a moment, if you can't serve God with what you've got, you'll never serve him with what you haven't. If you're waiting for a perfect moment to start giving, it'll never come. If you're waiting for a perfect diary so that you can get involved in serving others, you'll never serve them. 
If you're waiting until everything is fixed in your head and in your heart and in your family so that you get to the place where you say, now I can do it, it's never going to arrive. God asks us to encounter him in the here and in the now and in the present, not in some kind of perfect idealized tomorrow. Some people think that their families aren't strong enough to serve God together. What is a strong family? Is anybody's family strong? Do we all have to try to work out what this means to be people that are putting God at the center of our families? Behind all of our doors of respectability and having it together, there are broken people. Men trying to work out how to be fathers and husbands. Women trying to work out how to be mothers and wives. Parents trying to work out how to juggle a full-time job and bringing up kids. Teenagers trying to work out where they fit in the world. Young adults trying to uh, come to terms with all of the things that are being thrown at them left, right and centre. What if God doesn't wait for perfect idealised moments? What if he doesn't wait for the perfect representation of who you are? What if what he wants to say to you tonight is just come as you are? Give me your now. Give me your complete confusion. Give me your brokenness, your uncertainty. Give me the plan with the holes in it. Give me the ideas that you have that are not yet worked out. Just give me you. I can do something with you. And that you might be a woman or a man whose life has fallen apart. There might be someone who has been locked out by educators or parents or a previous generation told that you'll never amount to anything. That you could be a child that has never spoken, a son that lives with disability, a daughter that the world looks at and thinks, oh. And you look at and think, made in God's image. Loved by him. Some years ago, I was pastoring a church in um, Bournemouth called Springbourne Christian Centre. It was an Elam church. And we had started to see some growth in that fellowship. I was standing at the door, as I do still here, um, shaking hands with people as they left. And I was bemoaning the fact that um, we had started to see people converted. We'd started to see the church grow, but we were (laughs) under-resourced. Story of every church's life, right? And as people were leaving, they were saying, lovely message, Pastor, thank you so much. And I was shaking their hand. And an internal argument was going on in my head with God. We need more people. We need more resources. We need more money. We need more volunteers. We need more helpers. We need more space. We need more buildings. Well, just everything was we needed more of. And I felt as if God said to me, will you stop telling me what you don't have? And start looking at what you do have. And I looked across the road, and opposite us was this old vegetable shop with a broken window. We were on the edge of an area called Boscombe, and it was the highest drug use ratio inhabitant uh, numbers in Europe, because at that time, in the mid-90s, the British government had a fantastically developed plan around how to handle people who had been arrested and imprisoned for drug use. They sent them all to live in the same place when they came out. Boscombe. Everybody in England who had a drug record was sent to live in Boscombe. That was always going to fail, right? We were on the very edge of that. And therefore, nobody wanted to buy houses where we lived. Nobody wanted to live where we lived. 
cars were burnt out regularly, um, absenteeism at school was enormous. Everything was really difficult. And a lot of the people in our church bust it, drove in and drove out. They were an eclectic congregation. But as I looked across at this vegetable shop, I thought, well, maybe we could use that. Who do we have in our church? We had a guy who was a bank manager. One. We had a guy who was um, a solicitor. We had somebody involved in healthcare, and we had somebody involved in counselling. So we wrote to the people that owned the vegetable shop, and we asked them could they give us that to set up a community office. I devised this plan on a bit of paper. We were going to run Dorset's first community office project. And they wrote back, the people that owned it, and said, yes, you can have it for X hundred pounds a month. And I said, well, we could give you a tenner a week. <laughs> and they wrote back and said no, and I said, that's okay. When I do a story about this in the press, I'll let them know that you said no. <laughs> and they wrote back and said, you can have it for a couple of years at a tenner a week. I said, great. <laughs> then I wrote to a local paint shop and said, can we have a couple of tins of paint? They said, well, the paint that we have isn't great, but if you want a tin, you can come up and pick one of the ones that somebody's brought back. But they were all like violently bright colors, except on the day that we went, somebody just happened to bring back some lovely green. So we had that. A carpet shop gave us a bit of off-cut carpet. I wrote to Barclays Bank and Pool and they gave us a couple of old desks. We had a collection in the church and we bought a sofa, one, black, cheap, from DFS, that eternal shop of seals. <laughs> we got a sign above the door. We sent letters to all of the community telling them that we were going to have this community office. We moved the photocopy over to it and the phone over to it. And we started on the day that we opened it. 4,000 people from the community came to the opening of a community office, which was no bigger than two of those drums sets. It was tiny. In the first 18 months, we saw thousands of people coming through it. Our church began to change. Instead of focusing on what we couldn't have and didn't have, we focused on what we did. Every Monday night on a four-week cycle, we offered, them, we offered the community week one free legal advice. That was very popular. Week two, we offered them free banking advice, free debt advice, before cap. That was very popular too. Week three, we offered free healthcare, free healthcare guidance, free support. And week four, we offered free counselling. Then a local MP heard about it and said, could I have a surgery in that once a month? A local counsellor said, could I have a surgery in it? Local charities started to work with it. The DSS, as it used to be, said, we could have people fill in forms there. Schools outreach workers said we could use this. We started just with what we had, with not very much. This story doesn't end there. Four or five years later, I find myself in a conversation with um, a local, um, a regional government person who had heard about our project and wanted to find out more about it. And they came and they said, we're starting a little initiative that is uh, being tried across the UK called a neighbourhood management scheme. It doesn't matter what it meant. It just meant helping local communities. Would you like to be part of that? I said, well, I don't really know very much about that type of thing, but okay, if you want me to. All from what we, that little tiny thing that we had, not what we didn't have. That led to being invited onto a, a new steering group for something called single regeneration bids, which was millions of pounds across the United Kingdom. That led, about six months later, to being asked to go to a meeting with regional government officers, one of whom was also John, what's his name? The guy that was the Deputy Prime Minister, Prescott. That one. <laughs> John Prescott. 
I met with him. That led to being invited onto a national pathway to explore how local government and central government could coordinate to provide resources to local communities so that they could be better. That led to a conversation with a man called Tony Blair. That led to being invited to be on the first board of national and local connected services. That led to being um, somebody that was invited into conversations regularly with the next four prime ministers. That led to a conversation with the United Nations that meant that I became involved in how faith in local communities can transform them. That led to meetings with a man called Barack Obama. It's a remarkable thing. It all started when I looked across the road at a vegetable shop with boarded up windows. And instead of starting with what I didn't have, we started with what we did have. What we had to bring to God. What do you have in your hand tonight? What could God ask of you? What might he be drawing out of you? There are people in this room who have remarkable careers ahead of them. They will discover things about cancer treatment that will change the face of medical planning and implementation. You probably don't know that there are men and women that are sitting here that have, are deeply embedded in research around medical ethics and support and help. There are those that are involved in boards for healthcare trusts. There are those that are involved in business ideas. There are those involved in IT. There are those involved in education. There are those involved in government policy. Sitting here tonight, there are those involved in designing um, equipment that can help with energy consumption to make us a better, fairer planet, that design furniture that can be used in public spaces. And God has brought them all to this little church. And you might say, but that's not me. But you see, that's not my point. Then there are ordinary men and women like you and me. There are people who don't feel as if they have a lot to contribute. But we don't realize that our small amount can be used powerfully by God to transform the world. How you serve a sandwich, how you answer a phone call, how you relate to your children, what do you do when you kick a ball, whether you kick it straight or not straight, or hold a proper ball, which is oval, and how you use that. Anybody Welsh in the room? What a shame. <laughs> God can take who we are. He can take what we have. And he can do something remarkable with it. But he can't do it unless we give it to him. He doesn't encounter you or I in a vacuum. He doesn't come in a timeless moment of perfect silence with angels singing in the background and candles lit around us and a preacher who is word perfect. He comes in the mess. He comes in the today of your life and says, give me what you are. And let me do something with it. As I said at the beginning of this message, God can take what is useless and make it priceless. So what can you give him tonight? Probably not a perfect life. But could God take your guilt and turn it into somebody else's hope? Could he take the story of your shame and turn it into somebody else's 
pathway to a better life. God took a young man called Joseph and made him the second most important person in Egypt. He took a penniless refugee who had been widowed and lost everything called Ruth and made her one of the ancestors of his son. He took a frightened hidden man called Gideon and made him a leader. He took a young boy called David whose father didn't even remember him when asked to name his sons. What does that mean? Would any of you ever do that? Bring your sons. So Jesse brings them all, but not David. And Samuel says, have you any more? Think of, the, think of that. And he says, oh yeah, there is another one. And God says, well, the other one is the one I want. <coughs> and makes him the greatest king Israel had ever seen. He took five stones from a river and killed a giant with them. He took a young teenage girl called Esther and made her the deliverer of Israel. God took a song and changed the world. He took a flower and brought beauty. He took a lunch and fed 5,000. He took a baby wrapped in rags and changed human history. He took a teenage mother and used her. He took a star and led people to a new place. He takes a cup of water and transforms his society. He took a widow's few coins and used it as a story that reminds us that it's not how much we give that it's important, it's the heart with which we give it. And he takes a mustard seed and plants hope in every generation. So what might he take from you? What might he take from me? And what if tonight, instead of moaning about what we don't have and waiting for the perfect opportunity to serve God, every one of us makes a decision that says, take me as I am, because I can come no other way.